Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality. That's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Tuesday, February 20th, 2024, the 1,126th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So let's continue our investigation of this Alexei Navalny narrative, because the more time I spend with it, the more fascinating it becomes. And it's not because I'm obsessed with the intrigue about how he died. I'm not sure he died. It's claimed that Putin killed him, but I have no reason whatsoever to believe that. 
Everything we're told about Alexei Navalny is a fabrication. It is a reality television show, a fiction presented to us as true. And I think as we go through this, you might agree that Alexei Navalny, the character, is himself a fiction. And it's funny because Vladimir Putin calls him a character. So I started yesterday's episode by recalling Friday's episode, and I just want to mention that briefly so that we can think about all of this in the proper framing, attempt to tell you where I'm going with this. And as we go along, you can see if what we are told about Navalny would lead you to the same conclusions I see up ahead. So on Friday, we discussed how Fonnie Willis had brought this RICO case down in Fulton County, Georgia, and The structure of that RICO case, the critical facts and the critical players were all laid out for Fonnie Willis in a report by the Brookings Institution and Norm Eisen in particular back in 2021. Norm Eisen served as outside counsel for the Democrats during the Ukraine impeachment hoax, and he has prepared these reports as he did for Fonnie Willis in the Jack Smith indictments as well. Norm Eisen is the author of the Color Revolution playbook. He conceives of these massive narratives that destabilize countries, allowing the global regime to further infiltrate and gain further control. And that cycle repeats in different countries around the world on slightly different timelines with little variations and customizations according to the culture of each one of these different nations where the playbook is employed and it cycles through and repeats forever until it's stopped. But the point here is that Norm Eisen and Brookings essentially handed the paint by numbers plan for how to get Trump on this Rico conspiracy case in Fulton County, Georgia. At the time, Norm Eisen wrote in the New York Times, that it would be a riskier play for Fonnie Willis, but that it was worth it because they needed a big sweeping narrative in order to capture the country's attention and let everyone know that Donald Trump absolutely must be imprisoned and can never again be president. And we've seen them attempt this down all sorts of narrative paths. We have the multiple indictments. We have the E. Jean Carroll issue. None of these cases even overlapping or coming into contact with any discernible reality. The cases are preposterous on their face if you exist in reality prime, but they need the major narrative just like they needed a major narrative to convince the country that January 6th was a very violent insurrection and that's exactly what they gave us. They hired a television producer and gave us a primetime television show specifically designed to dramatize the events and get the American people back on the same page when it comes to their interpretation of what happened on January 6th. Now, the so-called scandal that is unfolding down in Fulton County, Georgia, that Fannie Willis is now defending herself from and defending her actions in began before Fannie Willis ever brought these charges. And because of that timing, you would have to think that the people encouraging her to bring these charges may well have been aware of that potential scandal. Fannie Willis was compromised at that point before she brought the case. 
It's entirely possible, therefore, that she could have been leveraged into bringing the case based on this compromise. And now this compromise is being burned and she is being taken down. Now, whether or not she'll be dismissed remains to be seen. But what we can see in the media as it delineates the bounds in which we can have this conversation about Fonnie Willis is that it's not only okay from the Fox News perspective to say what Fonnie Willis did is wrong and that the entire Trump prosecution is in doubt or in jeopardy. It's okay to say it even if you're in the CNN or MSNBC crowd. Fonnie Willis, we are told, is toast. She is getting the heat from both sides, and it seems like ultimately it's her own side that is going to burn her. And when you are clear about what the two sides actually are, they're not Democrat and Republican. It's the Uniparty versus the people. It is, in fact, just the Uniparty that is burning Fonnie Willis. The Uniparty right and Uniparty left have come into agreement that Fonnie Willis did something wrong. Now, we don't quite know why she's being burned, but we know that she is being burned. She's being taken down. Will she be dismissed and replaced with someone who's even better, who makes a bigger media and narrative splash? Will she be dismissed and that leads to the case being dismissed? Or will she be kept in place and continue prosecuting this case against Donald Trump, despite having been brought down so many pegs? And I think that might be where we end up. I think we may see an incapacitated prosecutor trying to bring this case against President Trump, just as we see an incapacitated fake president potentially running for reelection again and an incapacitated Robert Menendez potentially running for president again. Three people that the regime would much rather replace, but doesn't seem to be able to. Menendez took a hit in the New York Post today. The headline in the New York Post was safe sex secrets disgraced Paul Menendez showed cash stuffed safe to married lover who posed nude for him 15 years before FBI gold bars raid and dossier. Bob Menendez is basically being presented as if he were a hip hop star in the early 2000s like he's Mace or P. Diddy. So we're going to keep that in mind. I want to keep in mind the concept of false starts. I talked about this last fall. Alex Jones at one point had put out a big report about how they were just weeks away from launching the next very deadly pandemic and everybody jumped on it. Everybody immediately gravitated toward Alex Jones saying that started making so much fun of the idea of pandemics, how stupid COVID was, how stupid it was that people still believe in this stuff. And the entire narrative disappeared. They continue to talk about disease X. But will anybody believe it at this point? What we are witnessing is a series of narrative events. We know that the regime, that the global evil twin needs these major media events in order to get everybody on the same page. They need everybody to understand things in the same way. That is their ultimate goal. And that requires them to have full narrative control when they want to move forward with some narrative deployment, as Burning Bright calls it, some new plot story, some new side quest. They need to control how that issue is introduced to people, to their audience. And if anyone else is able to preempt that, then their chances of success with a given narrative deployment drop rapidly to just about zero. 
That is the value of these false starts. And you might remember that last August, the Fonnie Willis prosecution, the indictment itself was victim to a false start. The indictment was leaked on the court website in the morning, widely reported, and that totally took the wind out of the sails of Fonnie Willis's big primetime spectacular about this indictment that she was bringing. It looked like a ridiculous television show after everyone had already been witness to the false start. If you understand that the narrative deployments collectively focus the collective mind and guide collective action and response, which then actually causes real effects in the real world from the narrative deployment, then you can easily understand how causing a narrative deployment to fail can prevent those negative consequences, those negative effects in the real world. Now, you might think I'm being unfair because the way I am presenting this assumes that what they are attempting to do with the narrative, the effects they want to cause in the real world will be negative, but that is because their agenda is explicitly in opposition to the interests, the will, the needs of normal people. They tell you that all the time. I don't think I need to reestablish that here. So to state it simply, they are looking to cause some sort of condition in the real world to begin existing. To get there, they need to get everyone on the same page through the creation of a public narrative. If that public narrative fails, then the effect that they are looking for in the real world will not happen. So if you can cause the narrative to fail, you can actually prevent a negative consequence in the real world. And that false start effect is what you see when one of these is cut off right from the beginning. So you could see that in the Alex Jones example. You could see it in the Fonnie Willis indictment example. And I think we can see that in the Alexei Navalny example. I think we will also see that Alexei Navalny has been set up for this narrative purpose over the course of more than a decade. This is a significant investment in time and resources and attention and in character building. They were basically over time arming this big narrative bomb and that narrative bomb would explode and it would remove Vladimir Putin from power. That is the effect they want to create ultimately in the real world. And so we are in the process of diffusing that narrative bomb. And the last piece of this framework I want to focus on is that I think what we will see with Alexei Navalny is that over the course of this decade, they were essentially creating a Manchurian candidate. We are witnessing the creation of a Manchurian candidate. And you might think, well, that's over now that Navalny has died. But wait, there's more because the Manchurian candidate they're creating is not actually Navalny. It's his wife, Yulia Navalny. And if you think that's crazy, look what they tried to do with Volodymyr Zelensky's wife and look what they have done with Michelle Obama. In fact, look at what they did back in the 90s with Hillary Clinton. And oh, by the way, there is a picture of Hillary Clinton and Yulia Navalny at the Munich Security Conference, standing face to face, basically wearing the same thing with the same hair color and the same haircut. So we got a bunch of concepts to pay attention to as we get into this. But I think that they all kind of intersect in a beautiful way in this Navalny story. 
So we have the idea of toast, these assets being burned now from their own side. We have false starts preempting a narrative deployment. We have the diffusal of a narrative bomb, and we have the building of a Manchurian candidate. So let's get started by heading back to RT.com Russia Today. This is what our state media calls Russian state media. The headline from Friday, from Russian nationalist agitator to darling of Western liberals, who was Alexei Navalny? And let's get into a little more of his background. Alexei Navalny collapsed and died on Friday in a prison colony north of the Arctic Circle, where he was serving a 19-year sentence under Russian laws on extremist activities. He was 47. In the West, the Kremlin critic was heralded as the Russian opposition leader. In Ukraine, he was denounced as a Russian nationalist. At home, his legacy is complicated. Born in 1976, Navalny graduated from law school in 1998 and earned a degree in finance in 2001. He would go on to dabble in law, investments, and activism during his career, but kept coming back to politics. Between 2000 and 2007, Navalny was a member of the liberal Yabloko Party before co-founding an ethnic nationalist movement called Narod. He appeared in two notorious YouTube videos for the group, one advocating for gun rights to fight, quote, flies and cockroaches, attached to images of Muslim insurgents from the South Caucasus, and another comparing immigrants from Islamic regions to tooth decay. In August 2008, Navalny spoke approvingly of the Russian intervention against Georgia on behalf of the beleaguered South Ossetia. He went on to participate in three annual Russian March rallies with advocates for ethnic nationalism. Activist Evgenia Albots later said she had urged Navalny to join the rally as a way to leverage ethnic nationalism against the Kremlin. In 2010, Albots would co-sponsor Navalny's six-month stay in the U.S. through the Yale World Fellows Program. And it was interesting to watch in CNN's Oscar-winning documentary Navalny that tracks his supposed poisoning and then his supposed investigation to find out who poisoned him just hand-in-hand -hand right alongside a quote-unquote journalist from the ostensibly independent intelligence organization Bellingcat. They conducted their investigation by using tools that were purchased on the black market, according to the Bellingcat journalist. But in that documentary, Navalny's daughter, Dasha, she attends Stanford, and it seems like she was raised almost entirely in the United States. She has no accent. She sounds American. She appears in that CNN documentary, but she also gives a TED talk. They were basically trying to create stars out of the entire family. Back to RT. By that point, Navalny had already called on his finance expertise to launch an investment activist group called Union of Minority Shareholders, which tried to shake down major companies such as Rosneft, Gazprom, Luke Oil, and others. His umbrella NGO network, the Anti-Corruption Foundation, also called the FBK, was registered in September 2011. Navalny would continue accusing the government in Moscow, regional governors and corporations of fraud, graft and corruption, often getting sued for defamation in the process. 
Now, I try to keep in mind when I'm reading these things, how the U.S. might be interpreted, how the U.S. might look in 10 years if all things go well and the country is taken back, the global regime and its infiltration are removed from our government. We can set things back on the right course. We are beginning to prosecute the people who have committed crimes against America, crimes against humanity. They have violated our rights. They have systematically exploited the people, whatever else. All of the things that have been done by all of the government officials and all of the corporate actors and all of the attorneys and all of the doctors and all of the experts and academics, all of these people involved in the subversion of the United States of America and the attempted domination of countries all around the world, stripping their resources, impoverishing their countries, removing their people and shipping them around the world as slaves. The human trafficking, the drug trafficking, the sex trafficking, child sex trafficking, the organ harvesting, the weapons trafficking, the money laundering. It is a global criminal organization. At some point, all of this must be dealt with, and we can imagine how it will be described by the people who committed these atrocities against this country and people around the world. They're not just going to admit it and go quietly. They are going to claim that they are the real victims of political persecution. And when no one believes them, they will say it is because of their gender or their orientation or their religion or their race. This is how it works. We are once again presented with an underdog sort of relationship here. Alexei Navalny is going after the corporations. The corporations are suing Navalny for defamation. And we are inclined to think that these corporations and the oligarchs who own them are bad in all circumstances, and they might well be bad. But then go back five years and think about what journalists in this country were doing to businesses in America who didn't get on board with their political agenda. They would figure out ways to cancel those businesses. Was it good that those people were going after what they perceived to be corporate corruption or was it bad because they were doing it specifically to take advantage of the cultural moment, take down powerful people and replace those powerful people with communists? But let's continue. By February 2011, Navalny was dabbling in politics as well. He attacked the ruling United Russia Party as a collection of crooks and thieves and in December claimed it had stolen the national elections. Western media dubbed him the Russian opposition leader after he gave a series of speeches at anti-government protests that followed. Isn't that amazing? Navalny is a hero to members of the global regime and the Uniparty in America, despite challenging what he believes were stolen elections. Apparently, he was not threatening Russia's democracy. He was threatening to bring democracy to Russia. And because the lines between the thing and its opposite are sometimes so blurry that you really do have to look at whether or not the elections were stolen. You can't be threatening democracy in America by challenging stolen elections when the people stealing elections won't allow anyone to check to see whether or not they're stolen. And when the people who aren't allowing anyone to check to see whether or not the elections are stolen are promoting people who challenge stolen elections in other countries, you really have to start wondering if these people haven't inverted the meaning of the word democracy. 
The high point of Navalny's political career was the July 2013 election for mayor of Moscow, when he won 27.24% of the vote, but lost to Sergei Sobyanin. His attempt to run in the 2018 presidential election was blocked due to his criminal record. Now, it's weird, don't you think, that Alexei Navalny is able to fly around Russia and go to other countries and become this hero on the world stage, have CNN film documentaries about him while also having that sort of criminal record and also Putin being a brutal dictator who wants to kill this man. They're asking you to believe a blatantly incoherent story with obvious contradictions littered throughout it. And people will believe it because they like to get behind an underdog hero who promises to take down the big evil man. This is why the communists like figures like Adam Schiff or Adam Kinzinger or Michael Avenatti, someone with a media presence, someone who seems like they know what's up and seems like they're just evil and ambitious enough to get what everybody wants, which is take down the big evil man. The regime loves building up these characters. Just a bit more here from RT. Navalny's first criminal conviction was for embezzlement from Kirovles, a state forestry company. And I have no idea if I'm saying that right or not. In 2013, he was sentenced to five years in prison, but this was later changed to probation. The European Court of Human Rights said in 2016 that his actions had been, quote, indistinguishable from legitimate business activities. The European Court of Human Rights, just a body invented out of nothing who makes declarations about how people in countries around the world should be treated. What is this? At the trial, Navalny denounced the charges as politically motivated and railed against the disgusting feudal system in which, quote, 100 families, end quote, were allegedly looting Russia. Navalny and his brother Oleg, a postal employee, faced more charges of embezzlement in 2012 for defrauding the Russian branch of the French cosmetics giant Yves Rocher. The brothers were found guilty in December 2014, but Alexei once again received only probation. In 2019, the Russian government labeled Navalny's FBK a foreign agent, severely limiting its activities. And finally, it is noted he was hit with additional charges of fraud and contempt of court, receiving an additional nine-year sentence in 2022. In August 2023, Navalny was sentenced to another 19 years behind bars on charges of fomenting, financing, and carrying out extremist activities and quote-unquote rehabilitating Nazi ideology. The FBK was shuttered on government orders. The Human Rights Commission of the United States Congress has on its website in a subsection called the Defending Freedoms Project, they have an entry for Alexei Navalny because they have another subsection called Died in Custody by Country, and he is listed under Russia as having died in Russian custody. This is a human rights concern because he died while being held prisoner. They list his charges. Violation of probation, fraud, creation of an extremist community, calls for extremism, financing of extremism, involvement of minors in dangerous acts, 
the creation of an NGO encroaching on the rights of citizens and the rehabilitation of Nazism. Now, I would argue that a person with that background does not sound heroic unless, of course, the leader of the country charging him with all of those things is actually himself a brutal, evil dictator who just makes things up about his political rivals in order to imprison them. Like, for instance, if Joe Biden was president of Russia, then you could actually imagine this as the inversion they claim it is. But of course, Alexei Navalny has an actual history of all of these things, and it's widely reported. It's no secret whatsoever. So what we have here is not a case where Alexei Navalny is being wrongly accused of being an extremist and promoting Nazi ideology. He has a history of that. Navalny's history with extremist groups was actually addressed in this CNN documentary. And of course, it was important to address this because at the exact time when they were filming and releasing this movie, their audience was busy supporting Nazi battalions in Ukraine. And so the purveyors of this propaganda figured this is the perfect opportunity to get someone who they already perceive to be a hero to give them a justification for why they must work hand in hand with Nazis. And as I mentioned yesterday, the argument is always the same. The principles are only a display. They're only a virtue signal. They are a show. The principles can be violated whenever it can be argued that something else is more important based on a different set of principles. Every principle is open to be violated at any point if some other need or desire or priority comes along. And of course, working alongside Nazis is no different. It is important never to be racist, never to be violent. You can go down the list of all the characteristics of Nazis that it is important not to embody yourself. You don't want to be out there promoting concentration camps and censorship and propaganda, and medical experimentation, and segregation, and eugenics, and funding Nazi armies, and false flag events, and stolen elections. Unless you're told that the threat is so great that all of those principles must be violated because a higher principle demands your support. And that higher principle is to do exactly whatever you are told. This is from the CNN documentary Navalny. The first voice you're going to hear is by a man named Grozev, who is the journalist, in quotes, from Bellingcat. For the longest time, I wasn't sure what to make of Navalny. I had always wondered how much of an independent figure he is, or is he one of the many fake opposition figures created by the Kremlin? I criticized him on Twitter. I mean, he was known for having flirted with the extreme right in the early days of his career. He walked side by side with some pretty nasty nationalists and racists. Had he moved beyond that? Had he actually become a reverse Dark Knight? Всем привет, с праздником! С 
слово России! Те, кто собрались здесь, хоть завтра могут выгнуть всю эту воровскую сволочь из Кремля и из правительства. И сейчас, как никогда, нам необходим очень простой лозунг единения. Один за всех! Один за всех! Один за всех! Now, I'm going to keep going with the clip, but I just want to interject. That is Navalny speaking before the Russian march, and he is essentially saying, we're going to kick these assholes out of the Kremlin. We need a slogan. Here is our slogan. He screams one for all, and the crowd screams back, and all for one. And then he says, Slava Russia, which, of course, is the Russian equivalent to Slava Ukraina. Now, some of the video from these marches is not in the CNN documentary, and it's no mystery as to why. It's because some of the people marching are doing the Zig Heil hand gesture. The CNN documentary kind of tries to hand wave that with a little bit of humor. It calls them Zig Heilers. And so let's pick right back up. Navalny will be speaking now to the interviewer. Within all my career, I've been asked the same 15 questions all the time. Are you afraid? Are you working for Kremlin? What is your family doing? You have a responsibility for your family. When if it's foreign, foreign uh, journalists, they're asking about nationalism and Russian march. And every one of them, just Jesus Christ, just watch previous interviews. Hold on. Were there not a couple of Zig Hailers at that thing? Sorry? Were there not a couple of Nazi guys at that march? But certainly a Zig Haler would be a different category that you would not want to associate with or march beside. Well, in the normal world, in the normal uh, political system, of course, I would never be in the same political party with them. But we are creating coalition, broader coalition to fight authoritarian regime just to achieve the situation where everyone can participate in election. Because a lot of politicians will be uncomfortable even associating or being in the same photograph with one of these guys. No, you comfortable with that? I'm okay with that, and I'm, I consider it's, it's my political superpower. I can talk to everyone. Anyway, well, they are citizens of Russian Federation, and if I want to fight Putin, if I want to be a leader of a country, I, can, I cannot just ignore the huge part of it. Well, there are a lot of people who call themselves nationalists. Okay, let's discuss it. We're living in the country when they are poisoning politicians and killing people and uh, arresting people for nothing. Uh, so, of course, I am totally fine to sit with the guy whose uh, who's, who's rally looks kind of not very good for me. So, Alexei Navalny is less very fine people on both sides and more... Let's get some of those people from the bad side on our side, which is also bad. So Navalny says that he has no problem being around these people because they are citizens of the Russian Federation. He wants everybody to be able to vote and express their voice. And he is just building a coalition. Okay, well, if that is what you are doing, how popular can your ideas be? If you need to get the Nazis in your coalition, a group that is in virtually every country except for Ukraine, a very small group, if you need to be able to make sure to include them in your coalition, you don't have a winning coalition. You are not 
a credible threat to Vladimir Putin's hold on power. The Russian people do not have your back. Now, it's worth repeating this CNN documentary entitled Navalny won an Academy Award. Was it a good movie? No. Was it incredible filmmaking? No. Was it a great documentary? No. Did it make a lot of sense? No. Did it have a profound emotional impact? No. But it won an Academy Award. And why is that? Well, because you have to know that it's really, really important. The importance of Alexei Navalny, what he means for the entire world, that is what ultimately won the Oscar. It's the same kind of process that won Barack Obama a Nobel Peace Prize just for getting elected, in quotes, while black. And because of Navalny's status, because of his position in culture, we cannot even level the accusation against him that he might actually have sympathies with Nazi ideologies or any extremist ideologies. We have to pretend that Alexei Navalny is the most credible political opposition, and that is why he's imprisoned, not for any extremist beliefs. Despite the fact that he clearly holds those beliefs and does not regret the beliefs or the associations. Now, I'm not one of those people who likes condemning a man for his associations, but we're talking now about his stated beliefs and priorities and a pattern that has been consistent for the last 15 years of his life. At least the people trying to paper over this problem are the same people who are supporting Ukrainian Nazis and the same people who think that racism is wrong in every situation, in any form, and it is their duty to eliminate racism from society. These are also the same people who promote collectivist ideologies without which racism would be impossible. There is a reason that all of these racist movements throughout history and the ones that exist right now always promote collectivist ideologies. That is the only path toward racism. It is just co-opted and directed in different ways to appeal to different groups. And once you can put different groups of collectivists together and focus them on a common enemy, you have done what they call coalition building. And so let's focus a little bit more on that and go back in time. This is The Atlantic, July 29th, 2013. The author is Robert Colson. The headline is Alexei Navalny, a liberal or a nationalist. Now, it makes no sense to put liberal and nationalist in opposition unless, of course, they are referring to the international liberal rules based world order that is explicitly global and anti-nationalist. They do not want nations. They don't want sovereign nations. They want to remove all those borders and they want to implement so much multiculturalism that any distinction between cultures just disappears. All of them have combined to form one superculture. And at that point, all that's left will be the superculture. Let's go through just a bit of this article. Again, this is 2013. Navalny has risen quickly to become the de facto head of Russia's anti-Kremlin opposition, a rise based almost entirely on his relentless exposure of high-level hypocrisy and corruption and his consistent demand for fair elections. While those positions are broadly endorsed by Russia's liberals, some have voiced alarm about Navalny's association with ethnic Russian nationalists and about some of his statements that they say are dangerously inflammatory. 
now that he is the leading opposition candidate in the September 8th mayoral election in Moscow, his past positions are coming under increased scrutiny, including by some who have coordinated the opposition to President Vladimir Putin's role for more than a decade. Controversially, Navalny has participated in the annual Russian March, a parade uniting Russian nationalist groups of all stripes. He has also endorsed a nationalist-led campaign called Stop Feeding the Caucasus that has called for ending federal subsidies to the corrupt and ineffective governments of Chechnya and other North Caucasus republics. He also supported Russia in its war against Georgia in August 2008, using a derogatory term for Georgians in some of his blog posts and calling for all Georgians to be expelled from Russia. He has since apologized for using the racist epithet, but says he stands by the other positions he took at that time. He has at various times called for deporting illegal immigrants and introducing a visa regime for the countries of Central Asia. Answering criticism for his associations, they say Navalny has rejected the widespread notion that discussing issues important to ethnic Russians will necessarily lead to neo-Nazism. Skipping down in the article from The Atlantic, in part, the fears of Navalny's nationalist views have been fanned by media connected with the Kremlin and the United Russia Party. So Vladimir Putin is responsible for making a focus of Alexei Navalny's view. Now, that would be an opposite point of view compared to the Western media critiquing Navalny for his nationalist views. They're saying big bad Putin is just trying to score political points against Alexei Navalny by bringing up his actual past. This tells the reader, this is not a real view that you should accept and take on and understand and maybe yourself criticize Alexei Navalny. No, 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 no. You have to ignore this because this is just Vladimir Putin's political attack strategy. And we know that Vladimir Putin is very bad. Therefore, we too have to defend Alexei Navalny's past prior relationships with neo-Nazis and the fact that he continues to justify that position. The article concludes this way. Opposition leader and former deputy prime minister Boris Nemtsov has urged Russians to support Navalny despite his concerns about some of Navalny's positions and their past tactical disputes. Liberal journalist Matvey Ganapolsky agrees with Nemtsov, saying, I am completely pragmatic in my attitude toward Navalny. For me, he is a tool. His opinion about the authorities in Moscow, about the anti-Kremlin mood, completely correspond to my own, Ganapolsky says. I want to see honest elections in Moscow. I don't have any other candidate. At the bottom of the Atlantic article, it notes, this post appears courtesy of Radio Free Europe slash Radio Liberty and Radio Free Europe is a U.S. government-funded media organization. So a foreign-based U.S. government-funded journalist is running interference for Alexei Navalny and arguing that we must work with him despite those associations because the big bad man is just so big and just so bad. And of course, that is the exact same rationalization we see so often here in the United States when these same people are once again and again and again violating their principles in order to somehow defeat Donald Trump. 
everything is worth it because of the threat that Donald Trump and his MAGA Republicans pose to our democracy. Now, let's look at an article by Masha Gessen in The New Yorker back in 2021. The headline is The Evolution of Alexei Navalny's Nationalism. And let's just first take a look at who Masha Gessen is. This is her Wikipedia entry. So the CIA approved official story about Masha Gessen. Masha Gessen is a Russian-American journalist, author, translator, and activist who has been an outspoken critic of Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. She is fully, astoundingly Trump deranged. It is unbelievable. Gessen is non-binary and trans and uses they, them pronouns. Gessen has written extensively on LGBT rights. Described as Russia's leading LGBT rights activist, Gessen has said that for many years, they were probably the only publicly out gay person in the whole country. They now live in New York with their wife and children. Gessen was born into a Jewish family in Moscow to Alexander and Yelena Gessen. Gessen's paternal grandmother, Esther Goldberg, the daughter of a socialist mother and a Zionist father, was born in Bialystok, Poland in 1923 and emigrated to Moscow in 1940. Esther's father, Jacob Goldberg, was murdered during the Holocaust in 1943, either in the Bialystok ghetto or a concentration camp. Gessen's maternal grandmother, Ruzia Solodovnik, was a Russian-born intellectual who worked as a censor for the Stalinist government until she was fired during an anti-Semitic purge. So she was a censor for the communists, but was fired during an anti-Semitic purge. Gessen's maternal grandfather, Samuel, was a committed Bolshevik who died during World War II, leaving Rusia to raise Yelena alone. Okay, so communists, socialists, Zionists, and their granddaughter is somehow a prominent voice in American media despite all that. You see, her family did not support the worst regimes of the 20th century. In fact, they were victims. And one last note from Wikipedia before we get back to her article in New Yorker. Here is an entry from her Wikipedia bio under the headline Radio Liberty. Oh, wait, that's the exact same organization that Robert Colson, the Atlantic writer, was involved with. Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty. In September 2012, Gessen was appointed as director of the Russian Service for Radio Liberty, a U.S. government-funded broadcaster based in Prague. Shortly after their appointment was announced, and a few days after Gessen met with Putin, more than 40 members of Radio Liberty's staff were fired. The station lost its Russian broadcasting license several weeks after Gessen took over. The degree of Gessen's involvement in both of these events is unclear, but has caused controversy. And of course, we are also supposed to think that that is very bad, Putin being an authoritarian. But the question is, should countries be required under free speech principles to allow other hostile nations to use the airwaves to promote the propaganda of those hostile nations? Now, I spent time on her background because that is important based on the perspective that she provides in these pieces in The New Yorker. She has a big piece from just the other day on Navalny's death, and we'll go through a bit of this, but this is from back in 2021, February 15th, so almost exactly three years ago. The evolution of Alexei Navalny's nationalism. 
In this article, she writes, over the years, I've had a couple of arguments with Navalny and a few with friends whose support for him flummoxed me. A mentor of his who is Jewish, a tireless campaign volunteer who is American. But I felt I could respect him and disagree with him at the same time. Nationalist leaders have historically often played key roles in building democracies. And it's not as if I had to decide whether to vote for Navalny. So his views are okay, even though she is Jewish because she doesn't have to vote for him herself. So she can simply see the good side and believe that he is effective as a tool. And also that nationalists of his stripe have helped to effectively build democracies. In fact, nationalists of his stripe are being currently supported by Masha Gessen in Ukraine. She outlines some of the criticism of Navalny. She writes the Kremlin, which for years banned his name from the airwaves, has accused him of staging his own near death and unleashed a propaganda offensive against him, deploying, among others, the accusation that he is a far right ethno-nationalist. In the English language press, the socialist magazine Jacobin published an article branding Navalny as an, quote, anti-immigrant nationalist who cannot be trusted. The British journalist Anatole Levin, who covered Eastern Europe in the 1980s and 90s, has warned against idealizing Navalny. And the NYU professor Elliot Borenstein, one of American academia's most prolific commentators on contemporary Russia, wrote on Facebook, he's not Nelson Mandela, he's Aung San Suu Kyi. And Aung San Suu Kyi is the deposed fake president of Myanmar. She is a Clinton Soros Obama associate who stole an election and was deposed in what they call a military coup, but was actually just the military removing an illegitimate leader from power and flushing the Open Society Foundation from their country. That was back when the global regime was just losing the little countries like Myanmar and Burkina Faso, not the big countries like Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan, even though Taiwan's not a country and kind of Ukraine's not either. And hey, 80 years ago, neither was Israel. Now, remember this constantly triggered Jewish lady whose family was socialist, communist, Bolshevik and Zionist is defending Navalny against people who have a problem with his quote unquote nationalism, which, by the way, isn't nationalism. It's just racism. It's just the tool from the collectivist toolbox. It always is. And he's using it how it's always used. Navalny's reputation as an ultra nationalist stems from statements and actions that are more than a decade old. In 2007, he left the Socialist Democratic Party, Yabloko, where he had served as the deputy head of the Moscow chapter to start a new political movement. He and his co-founders called their movement NARAD, the Russian word for people, and in their case, also an acronym for National Russian Liberation Movement. Navalny recorded two videos to introduce their new movement. They were his debut on YouTube. One was a 40-second argument for gun rights. The other, a minute long, featured Navalny dressed as a dentist, presenting a slightly confusing parable that likened inter-ethnic conflict in Russia to cavities and argued that fascism can be prevented only by deporting migrants from Russia. I mean, to be honest, he kind of sounds like your average Dan Crenshaw or Chip Roy. 
support the global regime on everything important and spend the rest of your time trying to cater to people who care about gun rights and care about stopping illegal immigration. All of these views are acceptable within that bubble of the central narrative, within that controlled opposition dynamic. And so they just change combinations of views to whatever works to attract whatever group needs to be attracted in order to build that coalition. Navalny closed his monologue with, we have a right to be Russians in Russia, and we will defend this right. It is decidedly disturbing to view. Around the time Navalny released the video, and for a couple of years after, Navalny took part in the Russian March, an annual demonstration in Moscow that draws ultra-nationalists, including some who adopt swastika-like symbols. In 2008, Navalny, like an apparent majority of Russians, supported Russian aggression in Georgia. In 2013, he made illegal immigration from Central Asia a central theme of his campaign for mayor of Moscow. In 2014, after Russia occupied Crimea, he said that, while he opposed the invasion, he did not think that Crimea could just be, quote, handed back by a post-Putin Russian government. In the past seven years, though, Navalny appears to have not made any comments that could be interpreted as hateful or ethno-nationalist. He has publicly apologized for his comments on Georgia. So they made him publicly apologize for his comments on Georgia. The rest of it he has not apologized for, though he no longer says these things. Now, this is a Jewish lady whose lineage was socialist, communist, Bolshevik, and Zionist, whose family history includes evading actual Nazis. And she is explaining that how, despite how disturbed she is of Navalny's former views, well, he no longer holds them. So he basically becomes like Robert Byrd. Sure, Robert Byrd was a grand Klegel and exalted Cyclops of the Ku Klux Klan. But 40 years later, he went on to admit that publicly supporting the KKK was not a good idea if you're the sort of young man who wants to get into politics. The media all says that he actually renounced all his former views. That's not true at all. He was, however, Joe Biden's mentor in politics for three decades. He was friends with Hillary. He was friends with Joe Manchin. He was friends with Barack Obama. But they decided at some point that that's not racist enough anymore. No-no people from the no-no side who say the no-no things, well, those people are condemned for life. One slip-up from 30 years ago, you are forever a racist. But someone who is actually a dyed-in-the-wool, non-stop, organizing, group-joining racist, well, there's a statute of limitations on that. You can't just call them a racist for the rest of their lives just because they were palling around with some Sig Heilers. This article from Gessen in The New Yorker in 2021 is quite long. I can't go through the entire thing. So let's jump down close to the end. What Navalny has been trying to imagine is a post-imperial Russian national identity. Putin's brand of nationalism is founded on nostalgia for the Soviet empire. Now, we've heard him talk at length about his position on Russian history and what he believes Russia should be in that interview with Tucker Carlson, if nowhere else, this view of Vladimir Putin does not make any sense. The nationalist opposition to Putin when it existed was isolationist and xenophobic. Navalny's position is rooted in a belief in the fundamental right of self-determination. Oh, so it's heroic. 
His realist position on Crimea angered both sides. Kasparov dissociated himself from Navalny because of Navalny's failure to state that Crimea is and should remain part of Ukraine. You see, Navalny actually isn't on board with the regime quite enough when it comes to Crimea, but back to the article. The far more numerous supporters of the annexation were taken aback by Navalny's statement that it was illegal and wrong. For seven years, Navalny has stuck to his positions. Navalny's political views have developed in an unusually public way over the past decade. He has never apologized for his earliest xenophobic videos or his decision to attend the Russian march. At the same time, he has adopted increasingly left-leaning economic positions and has come out in support of the right to same-sex marriage. This strategy of adopting new positions without ever explicitly denouncing the old ones is probably the reason the suspicion of ethno-nationalism continues to shadow Navalny. That's not a suspicion, Masha Gessen, and you would never extend that benefit of the doubt to anyone who was on the other side as you see it, Ms. Gessen. I mean, sorry, they Gessen. His ethnic nationalism, which isn't nationalism, it's just racism, and he says it's for the purposes of political expediency, if not his actual genuine views, all of that can be forgiven because he is showing increasing interest in leftist economic views and he supports gay marriage. So he's not a militant Nazi. He's more like a Weimar Republic. Everybody do drugs and have sex with your buddies, Nazi. And that makes it all better to they. They says, if you support they marriage, then they are, you are cool with they. Even if they is Jewish and you are a friend to Nazis. Let's move to another piece. This is actually from Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty. Navalny's failure to renounce his nationalist past may be straining his support. And this as well is from February 2021. It's like it's some kind of coordinated press push or something. What is the deal with Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty being so keen on supporting Alexei Navalny's reputation when it comes to his prior racist associations? It's so odd. From the article. On February 23rd, the prominent NGO Amnesty International withdrew Navalny from its list of prisoners of conscience, a designation reserved for people imprisoned for who they are or what they believe. Amnesty said Navalny, who is in prison on what he and his supporters called trumped up charges aimed at silencing him, fell short of its criteria because of past statements the rights watchdog perceived as reaching, quote, the threshold of advocacy of hatred, end quote. So Amnesty International doesn't want people to be imprisoned for what they believe unless what they believe is something that Amnesty International does not want to defend. It's bad to have people imprisoned for what they say and what they believe unless what they say and believe is actually bad and then it's totally okay, according to Amnesty International. Amnesty's recent probe into Navalny, who has come under scrutiny for his association with Russian nationalists and statements seen as racist and xenophobic, was promoted by a wave of complaints that appeared part of a, quote, coordinated campaign to discredit him after he was named a, quote, prisoner of conscience in January. So, again, 
there was a campaign, a media campaign pushed by Putin and the Kremlin to silence their political opponent, Alexei Navalny, for these things that he did say that were racist and xenophobic. Now, all of it's being framed as Russian nationalism, which kind of leads you to the idea that Russians who want to protect Russia and their nation and their people are somehow racist and xenophobic. And that, of course, is preposterous. No matter where you come down on Alexei Navalny and his association with Nazis, it's important to understand that beyond all of that, Vladimir Putin is what's really, really bad. Skipping down. In the 2000s, a loose alliance with ethno-nationalism was seen by some Russian opposition figures marginalized by an increasingly centralized system as a way to get a foothold in politics and ultimately create a unified movement to challenge Putin, who is also referred to himself as a nationalist and has played on nostalgia for the Soviet Union. In 2011 and 2012, for example, a huge wave of protests against Putin's rule saw active involvement among nationalists. You got that? So Nazis were opposed to Vladimir Putin. And so it's important to side with those Nazis because Putin is the real threat. I know you might think that it would make more sense to side with Putin against the Nazis, but you're simply not thinking of that the right way from the perspective of the global regime. You see, the Nazis are on their side whenever Nazis are needed to face a much bigger, more important threat than Nazis, even though Nazis are, in other cases, the worst possible threat ever. And any association with Nazis at any point in your life can end your political career unless, unless, unless you are on the right side. Navalny hinted at this idea in an interview with Polish journalist Adam Michnik that formed part of a co-authored book released in Russian with the title Michnik Navalny Dialogues in 2015. The basis of my approach is that you have to communicate with nationalists and educate them, Navalny said. I think it's very important to explain to them that the problem of illegal immigration is not solved by beating up migrants, but by other democratic means, a return to competitive elections that would help us get rid of the crooks and thieves getting rich off of illegal immigration. More recently, Navalny's political activism appears to have undergone a leftward shift with the anti-corruption crusader championing new trade unions and promising to help Russia's workers secure higher salaries after years of falling real wages. I see no contradiction in promoting trade unions while at the same time demanding a visa requirement for migrants from Central Asia, he told the news magazine Der Spiegel as he recovered in Germany after being poisoned in Siberia in August last year. Now, again, all of that is assumed by people from this perspective to be true, despite the fact that there is absolutely no proof whatsoever that Navalny was poisoned in Siberia at any point. But what we can see here is the marriage between his ethnically centered collectivist ideology and these new left wing economic ideals that he cares about. And again, a lot of this is about skewing the understanding of left and right. There is nothing about racism which requires collectivism that makes it an ideology of the right. Nationalism does not turn socialism into an ideology of the right. 
All of these collectivist ideologies are ideologies of the left by definition. Communism, socialism, fascism, Nazism, the Bolsheviks, these are all left-wing movements. They require the collectivist understanding to even seem coherent. The article concludes this way. The ultimate aim for Navalny, Volkov suggested, and that's his chief of staff, is for opposition to Putin in Russia to achieve critical mass. He believes that if you don't talk to the kind of people who attend these marches, they will all become skinheads, Volkov said. But if you talk to them, you may be able to convince them that their real enemy is Putin. And once again, we see a common strategy. Get the intelligence assets to target people who might lean toward extremist ideologies, cater to their viewpoints, take them seriously, promise them potential political power, which, by the way, you are prepared to deliver and get them on your side. Your collectivist supporters will not care. They are happy to just switch their aims. They don't have real principles. Bring the Nazis on board. If they can bring a bunch of people in to help their cause, it's totally worth it because the number one most important thing is to get rid of Vladimir Putin. Now, why are they so obsessed with getting rid of Vladimir Putin? And why is the global regime also so obsessed with getting rid of Vladimir Putin? It's like they're on the same side. And oh, yeah, they are on the same side. But wait, that doesn't make sense. The global regime, the uniparty, the evil twin faction, wherever it exists, says that it opposes racism in the most powerful terms. And then they just keep ending up with people who promote racism just all over the world. The worst, most heinous racists, the most brutal cartels and terrorist organizations, all of the extremist groups of the world, all infiltrated by global intelligence organizations and funded by them. And they all happen to produce political leaders that wind up parts of all of these causes. If you talk to them, you may be able to convince them that their real enemy is Putin. Get all of those collectivist groups that have already been divided. They already understand their relation to another oppressor class. They are the victim class no matter what. And then you combine all those victim classes and you tell the public that this is our coalition. Each and every one of these individual groups these oppressed political groups understand that despite their oppression being caused by X, Y, and Z entities, their real enemy isn't any of those organizations that oppressed them. The real enemy is this big, powerful enemy who is so dangerous that all of these other organizations need to oppress you in order to oppose that big bad guy. So the only thing that can be done in a situation like this, the only choice we have is to join forces with all of the oppressive organizations and all of the victim classes. We will all just have to subjugate ourselves to this need and to this cause because we just have to end the rule of this big bad guy. And just one more piece to hammer this point home. Al Jazeera, this is from August 2023. My good friend Burning Bright sent this my way. The headline is My Fears and Hatred. Navalny lambasts the 1990s Democrats of Russia. 
And this article discusses a post Navalny made online. He was very anti Boris Yeltsin. The article says almost a quarter century after Yeltsin stole the millennium celebrations on December 31st, 1999, by announcing his resignation, Russian liberal Democrats are sidelined, silenced or exiled. Many of them still consider Yeltsin a champion of democracy whose achievements outweigh his mistakes. But Navalny is not among them. I fiercely, madly hate all those who sold, drank away, wasted the historic chance our nation had in the early 90s. He wrote in a statement published on his Russian language website titled My Fears and Hatred. So he felt like the end of the Cold War was a wasted opportunity and blamed it on Boris Yeltsin and then on Vladimir Putin. But jumping down in the article, some observers call Navalny's statement a populist move that targeted the supporters of the Communist Party, whose voices Navalny wants to use if he ever runs for office. The Post continues his de facto promotion of the Communist Party for whose benefit he's been working in the past 10 years, Nikolai Mitrokin of Germany's Bremen University told Al Jazeera. Led by the proverb, my enemy's enemy is my friend, Navalny urged his supporters to back dozens of communists who ran against the candidates of the ruling United Russia Party in the 2021 parliamentary vote. But Navalny's efforts failed as, quote, almost all of his communist lawmakers turned out to be Putinists and warmongers, Mitrokin said. Other observers said that Navalny was right to emphasize how some reformists rushed to accept lucrative jobs. So he also tried to align with all of these communists wanting to use their voice as part of his coalition. And it turned out they had no principles and were incompetent. Whoops. So Navalny is all about coalition building. He can work with everyone from an elitist they-them journalist at The New Yorker whose family escaped Nazism and also work with Nazis. You can make strong anti-immigration statements while still entirely backing the regime that runs the global migration operation. You can be a hero of communists and leftists while working primarily as a social media influencer and live in beautiful, expensive, luxurious homes while sending your daughter, who is basically American, to Stanford. Like every product of the false reality, he stands for the thing and its opposite. He can encourage people and tell them that it's okay to work with these neo-Nazis, all of these racists, these communists, whoever, but also gay marriage is cool. He is both woke and representative of everything that would make you an enemy of the woke at the exact same time. It's like he's not even a real person. And perhaps this is why Vladimir Putin calls him, refers to him as a character. And so what is all this for? The Russian media outlet Medusa wrote this article on April 16th, 2021. The prosecutor's office demanded that the FBK be recognized as an extremist organization. And so this is Alexei Navalny's anti-corruption foundation. The Moscow prosecutor's office demanded that the FBK and the headquarters of Alexei Navalny be 
recognized as extremist organizations. The corresponding lawsuit was filed with the Moscow City Court. According to the agency, under the guise of liberal slogans, these organizations are engaged in the formation of conditions for destabilizing the social and socio-political situation. The prosecutor's office believes that the actual goals of the organizations are to create conditions for changing the foundations of the constitutional system, including using the scenario called color revolution. So how about that? Alexei Navalny's organization is essentially the Russian equivalent of Black Lives Matter and Antifa, both collectivist, Marxist, extremist organizations who use violence and intimidation as political tools, who organize to overthrow governments. They are organized and funded, and their actions are scripted by the global regime and people specifically like Norm Eisen. That was April 16th, 2021 in Medusa. This is the New York Times from April 29th, 2021. Navalny's network crumbling under Kremlin pressure. Associates of Alexei Navalny said they were shutting down their nationwide network of regional offices on Thursday, even as the imprisoned Russian opposition leader vowed in an online court appearance to keep fighting the emperor with no clothes in the Kremlin. Disbanding Mr. Navalny's 40 regional offices became inevitable in recent weeks, an aide to Mr. Navalny said, amid the Kremlin's latest efforts to stifle political dissent. Prosecutors are seeking to have Mr. Navalny's movement declared an extremist organization. A Moscow court this week ordered Mr. Navalny's groups to halt all public activity pending a final ruling in the extremism case. The article argues that Putin's suppression of all dissent has reached a new phase where he is now ready to dismantle the operations of his key opposition, this Navalny figure, who again has never at any point presented an actual credible opposition, despite the fact that he is constantly portrayed as doing so by the global propaganda media to audiences in the West. Let's pick the article up here. The independent news media has also come under increased pressure with one of the most popular Russian language news websites, Medusa, fighting for its survival after being declared a foreign agent by the Russian government last week. And so that's the website that we were just looking at. It is apparently still online. Still, Mr. Navalny appears determined to remain at the helm of the opposition to Mr. Putin, even from prison, where he is serving a two and a half year term for violating parole for what rights groups say was a politically motivated conviction for embezzlement. And what a framing that is. Rights groups say that it was a politically motivated conviction for embezzlement. So some rights groups in quotes, rights groups say that it was a politically motivated conviction. And that to the New York Times is all the news that's fit to print. They would never lie. They would never exaggerate. They would never make anything up, but they will just reprint uncritically any words said by anyone who is a member of anything that could be called a rights group. Now, here is some fine propaganda from the New York Times. Quote, your emperor with no clothes has stolen the banner of victory and is trying to fashion it into a thong for himself. Mr. Navalny said, addressing the judge 
According to audio recordings published by Russian news outlets, all your authorities are occupiers and traitors. So this is very tough talk against Vladimir Putin. Also the sort of talk that will get made into headlines. He sounds like Greta Thunberg screaming that you have stolen her childhood. How dare you? How dare you? And if you think there aren't people writing these lines for people like Alexei Navalny, you're wrong. Though naturally it is possible that Navalny just comes up with this stuff on his own. I mean, he is first and foremost an Instagram influencer. He just videos himself all day long. In the CNN documentary, he even shows his daughter how to use TikTok. What a cool dad being able to use technology even better than the teenagers. The Times follows during a break in the proceeding. Mr. Navalny spoke with his wife, Yulia Navalny, over the video link in the courtroom. He told her that wardens had taken him to a sauna on Wednesday to improve his appearance before the public saw him. He told her he was gradually increasing the number of spoons of porridge he was consuming as he came out of his hunger strike. I'm just a horrible skeleton, he said, describing what he saw when he looked in the mirror. So Alexei Navalny was on a hunger strike. Now, usually you do one of those. You have a demand and you refuse to eat until the demand is met. And either the demand is met or you die of starvation. Now, Alexei Navalny clearly was not going to die of starvation. It's good that he has that excuse printed right there in the New York Times. The prison wardens put him in a sauna to make sure that he would look better for his court appearance. He was really starving himself the entire time, but his jailers tried to improve his appearance so no one would realize the horrible conditions that he had been living in that he created himself in his hunger strike that he did for the purposes of social media and was never going to die doing Politico actually covers his hunger strike in an article called what the Irish could teach Navalny about hunger strikes down in the article. It says for their part, Navalny's supporters appear to have learned some, but perhaps not all the lessons from past hunger strikes and are using every opportunity to draw attention to his plight. He is reported to be near death just three weeks into his fast, whereas in the case of Max Swiney and Sands, their deaths did not occur well into their ninth and tenth weeks. It is possible that Navalny's general health is in such a poor state after his poisoning with Novichok last summer that he is likely to die after a much shorter fast. And again, it's important to continue pointing out there is no proof anywhere that he was poisoned, that it was Novichok, or that Vladimir Putin or anyone associated with him did it. But nonetheless, it is taken for granted by all Western media outlets and most of the people following this story. Back to this Politico piece. The one way to be sure of this is to allow his doctor or an independent non-Russian medic to care for him, which would mean Navalny could start taking nourishment again. Starving to death is hardly worth it for such a minor reward. So Navalny should not die on this hunger strike. And indeed, he didn't. That court appearance mentioned in the New York Times article was just a week later. And one last paragraph from the New York Times piece. The Navalny Group's network of offices started ahead of Mr. Navalny's failed attempt to challenge Mr. Putin in the 2018 presidential election. 
grew into the most expansive nationwide political infrastructure outside of the existing set of Kremlin-sanctioned opposition parties. The offices agitated for a boycott of the 2018 election in which Mr. Navalny was barred from running and worked on a coordinated effort to undermine pro-Kremlin candidates in local and regional elections that the Navalny team called, quote unquote, smart voting. And so let's jump over to Wikipedia and find out about smart voting. Smart voting is a tactical voting strategy put forward by the team of Alexei Navalny with the aim of depriving the ruling United Russia Party of votes in regional and federal elections. The goal of smart voting is to consolidate the votes of those who oppose the party, which Navalny dubbed as the, quote, party of crooks and thieves, end quote. On November 28, 2018, Alexei Navalny launched the Smart Voting Project. Initially, the system was mainly aimed at depriving the nominees from the politically dominant United Russia Party of their victory in the elections to the post of governor of St. Petersburg and the Moscow City Duma on 8 September 2019. Navalny explained the strategy as follows. The parties themselves cannot agree and nominate a single candidate against United Russia, but we can agree on this. We are different, but we have one policy. We are against the monopoly of United Russia. Everything else is mathematics. If we all act smartly and vote for the strongest candidate, he will win and United Russia will lose. And we can see a similar strategy emerging here in the United States. Pursuing ranked choice voting is one of the approaches to a problem like this. They need to keep one political party from power and they don't care who else wins besides that. So they just want to back whoever has the best chance of defeating that party they can't allow to hold power. Think about what we are about to see in the United States. The regime, the evil twin faction, the unit party in the United States wants to make sure that MAGA and America First do not get Trump elected first and foremost. But regardless, they have to be absolutely certain that he doesn't go in there with a full MAGA House and a full MAGA Senate and MAGA candidates winning state positions all around the country. They can't have that. So they will devise whatever strategy they need to get people elected who are not that. And that was Navalny's strategy. It doesn't matter what political views they represent. They just need to be anti-Putin and anti-United Russia. They will find candidates who have the best chance of defeating United Russia in any of these small races, and they will coordinate support for that candidate, regardless of political views, because the only priority that matters is getting the no-no people out of office. This is essentially the same approach that the Uniparty is using right here. And just as an aside, this might be a good point at which to mention the fact that Putin's chief opposition in Russia is actually the communist party of the Russian Federation. The communists are the ones who oppose Vladimir Putin in the greatest numbers. The Wikipedia entry mentions it is the second largest political party in Russia after United Russia. The youth organization of the party is the Leninist Young Communist League. And Putin expressed his disdain for Lenin in the interview with Tucker Carlson. 
So it's just another one of those misunderstandings that we have here in the United States that we have here in the quote unquote West. Vladimir Putin is strongly opposed by communists. He is not a communist. Russia is not a communist country. Russia is less communist than California. The communists in Russia are the ones claiming that Vladimir Putin is stealing their elections, but they're communists. Stealing elections is their thing because otherwise they can't win elections. They haven't received more than 20% support for president or in their legislative elections in nearly 25 years. So Navalny's organization is essentially accused of sedition, but our media presents all of this to us as Alexei Navalny, a somewhat controversial character who is mostly just an activist. He is doing whatever he can to pursue his political cause in the face of great oppression by Vladimir Putin's brutal dictatorship, trying to silence and oppress Navalny to make sure that his message cannot be heard by other Russians who would immediately support him if only they could hear his message. He was wrongly accused. He never did any of these things. And his organization is not seditious, despite being virtually the same as Black Lives Matter Antifa and pursuing election strategies and a color revolution playbook that have been supported by people like George Soros for the last three decades in Eastern Europe and in Russia. Soros has been kicked out of multiple countries in Eastern Europe and, of course, of Russia. But that doesn't mean that the regime is just going to stop trying that playbook. Fine. They don't have George Soros directly involved. They don't have Open Society Foundation offices. They can't organize as well on the ground, but they're still going to push their characters in there, push their money in there, push their media operations in there and try to destabilize society. Well, over the weekend, a clip on X, formerly Twitter, went viral the tweet was from George Papadopoulos, and he happened to make a bit of a mistake. In the post, Papadopoulos writes, It's horrific when a political opponent dies in jail, but it's also never good to be caught on camera attempting a coup in your country with a foreign intel service. Navalny, in this video, is asking MI6 officer James William Thomas Ford for 10 to $20 million a year to start a color revolution in Russia. This is why he was arrested and has major implications, especially in light of the CIA and MI6 sabotaging the Trump administration. Russia and the U.S. are more alike than you think, sadly. So Papadopoulos got this slightly wrong and a community note was added to Twitter, citing a story from RT.com, the Russia Today website. It says the man in the video is not Navalny, but Vladimir Asherkov, an associate of Navalny. He is not asking the other man for money. He is describing his fundraising pitch. The video is from 2010, first published in 2012. Navalny was sentenced on unrelated charges in 2021. Now, in that article from RT, it says the tape, which was first reported by RT television on Monday, is said to have been filmed by the Federal Security Service, that's the FSB, sometime in 2012 and allegedly shows a meeting between Vladimir Asherkov and an employee of the British embassy in Moscow. Asherkov is the director of the FBK, Alexei Navalny's anti-corruption organization. 
Now, it's not hard to find links to this video. The Gateway Pundit published an article. You can find it here at this headline. Was Russian opposition leader Navalny working with CIA? If you search for that, you'll find it. And I might just put these links in the show notes for this episode. But this associate of Navalny back then was saying, essentially, I need 10 to $20 million a year. This is not a lot of money for you, the people you work with. And he listed things that the money would be used for. He says mass protests, civil initiatives, propaganda, establishing contact with the elites and explaining to them that we are reasonable people and we're not going to demolish everything and take away their assets and things like that. So back in 2012, the director of Navalny's organization, the FBK, had a meeting with someone from the British embassy, which is basically just British intelligence, telling him that they need 10 to $20 million a year so that they can stage a color revolution. Now, I don't know if they ever got the money, but I do know that Alexei Navalny lives in a very nice house. It is extremely stylish and well-appointed. It's the sort of house you would just love to show off in your little videos that you film all day and night of yourself. So Navalny and the media that supports him, they claim that his racist past is over and that only the Kremlin uses it as a political weapon to silence Navalny and silence his movement to marginalize them. And yes, he associates with communists. Yes, his key associates meet with members of British intelligence, essentially asking for millions and millions of dollars to stage color revolutions in Russia and overthrow Vladimir Putin. But they're not guilty of sedition and anti-governmental behavior. He shouldn't be put in jail. You see, he's actually the underdog. He's the good guy in all of these situations. If anyone should be put in jail, it's Vladimir Putin. I mean, he could have just gone along with the global regime's entire agenda, and then he wouldn't have to deal with people like Alexei Navalny, but he's just there leading Russia and trying to make Russia strong without the global regime. And that's not allowed. So anything that is done in the name of removing him from power is actually really good. Even if you're just doing the absolute worst things with the worst people all the time and none of it in any way could ever be considered remotely democratic. And we can see the parallels here between Navalny's group and Black Lives Matter Antifa. And of course, we know the sorts of politicians that have taken advantage of Black Lives Matter Antifa, none more so than Barack Hussein Obama, who was also like Navalny, a Marxist community organizer, a person with a law degree, but no accomplishments as an attorney, a very effective social media presence who is far better in clips and sound bites and packaged PR products than he is in real life. Someone who is adept at identifying with both the thing and its opposite whenever it's necessary. Someone for whom hype is far more important than substance. It's like they have a certain model and they can just replicate that model and build it from nothing all around the world. And they don't have to stop at one. They can create five. They can create 10. They can create 2000. This is the model that they want. AOC is basically a less effective model of this 
than Navalny and Obama are. They're all basically just constructs. They are collections of characteristics. They have no coherent ideology. They represent everything and its opposite. And they attempt to come to power by, quote unquote, building coalitions, meaning collecting groups that will side with them whose votes they can claim ownership over in order to convince everybody else we have this very broad coalition. People across the political spectrum like what we're doing and support us. And therefore, everybody with those same identity markers is also one of our supporters, at least in the public narrative. And you might think, does this really work? Can they just create someone out of nothing and then claim that all these groups support that person and convince everybody that, well, I mean, I guess if all those groups support that person, it's certainly not hard for the TV to convince standard issue villagers that they also have to support that person. And all of a sudden you have this massive left wing coalition that doesn't even have to exist because the image and the understanding of the massive coalition does exist. And that's all they need to get someone elected. Because as everyone knows, in any country where they have power, they implement their election system so they can control outcomes of elections. The only thing at that point that you need is a convincing narrative about how this leader could have won. They build these things from the ground up. And in part three, I will wrap this up and we will talk about some of the fallout and some of the implications. And we'll plan on doing that tomorrow, but if there is big breaking news, maybe we'll switch focus for a day and come back to it. But with the holiday weekend and President's Day yesterday, there's kind of been this news void over the last three days, which has been a little weird. We're so used to so much happening all at the same time. It's weird to have a few quiet days in a row. And Saturday, Sunday, Monday, we're all kind of quiet relative to what we've become accustomed to. But regardless, I will be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month, comes out to under a quarter per episode, and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com, and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel-couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!